experienced in these blackouts, blackouts, stretches of time that you can't account for. Welcome back, everybody, to a holly jolly episode of Captain's Log. This is your co-captain speaking, Jose Valle Jr., joined by my newly promoted co-captain, Mason Schrader. Welcome back, Mason. Uh, tell me, how does it feel to be promoted? Hi, I didn't expect that. It feels good. It, I, this feels like a, a, a good end-of-year review for me. Yeah. We're gonna, at the end of the episode, we'll decide if you keep the promotion. Okay, so this is like an evaluation kind of episode. No, Mason, you, you've been promoted. And honestly, I, I can't believe that it took uh, uh, our listener, who you owe a huge thanks to, uh, our listener, uh, Sixten Blom, who left us a uh, wonderful comment uh, on TikTok, which sparked the, the discussion of this promotion. Um, I'm just going to read the comment. So it was yeah. on our, um, uh, our, I think it was... It was where you had said that no one who who was who was born in 1970 would would listen to our podcast, ah. or was listening, and right. uh, and they responded and said, "Well, well, captains," which they called us both captains, and that was what what made us both like. I think you jokingly were like, "Oh, I like that she called us captains," and I was like, "Ah, huh, yes, I hadn't even considered right. that. Maybe maybe that should be a thing." Good um, point. And uh, she, but she says, well, well, captains, I'm born in the 70s and I'm fucking listening. So hi from Sweden and thanks for such funny and great show. Uh, thank you, Sixten Blom, for listening from fucking Sweden, which is insane. Um, yeah. And for earning Mason this, this promotion. Thank you. I would love to say thank you in Swedish, but I don't know how. And I'm just going to do an impression of the Swedish chef. So I won't. So we'll probably just not do it. Uh, we also have another comment ba based on your comments from that episode. This one comes courtesy of your mother, Mason. Right. Who, who said, Dear Captain's Logpot, I was born in 1970. Which is funny that you didn't remember that. Uh, yeah, uh, so here's the thing, right? <laughs> Wait, no, no, let me finish reading the comment. Finish reading it, yes. I'm not yet 100 years old. I'm a 53-year-old who listens to your podcast, Love, Mason's Mom. Right. So here's the thing, right? And this is actually, I'm glad you brought this up because this just ties into, I was just listening to one of John Waters, uh, Mr. Know-It-All, his book today. Uh -huh. And he said specifically that any creative who does anything has to have one other person that isn't their mom who enjoys right. it. Right. So it's not that I'm forgetting about my mother. Right. It's that I'm purposely discounting her from my fans list because I know that I right, have I her this. unconditional yeah. love and support. Right. I do the same thing. Anyway. I will say thank you, Mom. Thank you, Mason's mom, for listening. Yep. And thank you to All. Sixten Blom, who's also a 53-year-old listening. Yeah. Uh, thank you both for proving yep. Mason wrong. Speaking of thanking listeners, Mason, I would also like to take a moment to... Uh, thank all our wonderful listeners in Ukraine. 
who have been showing us some international love this past month by making up a large chunk of our downloads along with our Freunde in Germany. That's right. I've been been doing German on Duolingo the past year. And, uh, You've been sprecking up a little bit of Deutsch. Ich spreche the Deutsch ein bisschen. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much to them and our fans in Michigan who have also been showing us some good old-fashioned American love. Uh, we appreciate all of you guys. It, again, we got our Spotify wrapped a couple weeks ago, and it was I sent it to Mason because I was like, this is insane. That, that yeah, it's it was like really 15 impre- it was countries. Really nice. yeah. And, yeah, just people listening to, despite the fact that we take 37 weeks in between episodes, yeah. and that half the time it's just us saying a silly thing, you guys listen, and that means the world to us. So thank you. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. Now, Mason... The Yuletide yes. season is upon us, right? Uh-huh. It's kind of why we're giving thanks and we're being cheerful and we're being happy. Yep. But it's also time for scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmas as long, long ago, right? Because right, most of people during this time, they like to be cheery, they like to be kind, they like to celebrate with warm, happy stories. But not us. Mm. No. Because we at Captain's Log are staunch believers in bringing the spooky back to Christmas. Yes. So it doesn't. It's not mostly night for a reason. Okay. Yes. It's dark I, out there and it's scary. It is scary. The other night I was walking to my car from like making fucking gingerbread houses at a friend's house or something, and it was cold and the trees are barren and one of her neighbors had like little lights outside that were like playing this like eerie version of fucking Twelve yeah. Days of Christmas and I was like, this is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, this is yeah. really good actually. Um, yeah. So anyway, despite me describing this episode as a holly jolly one, it's actually going to be quite the opposite. Uh, it's because more today, like um, holly, uh, nolly, nah, nolly, <laughs> nolly, 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 dude, holly nolly, dude, holly nolly. Uh, because a today, nolly is a is a skateboard trick. No, that's an ollie. Nope. A nollie is when you do it on the nose of your skateboard. It's called a nollie. You fucking asshole. Look at me. I grew up in a small Midwestern town. You think I don't know a little bit about skateboarding, asshole? I was only into skateboarding for like a summer. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was for like three, so. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, Mason, today we're going to be taking a look at the strange, tragic, and honestly terrifying case of the Yuba County Five. Yeah. This is a sad one, gang. It is. And thanks it's real to Mason sad, for and suggesting it's real spooky. this one. Yeah, I've been obsessed with this case, and I, I have no answers, and I wish I did, and it pisses me off that smarter people than me also can't figure it out. Yeah, that was the really, um, I mean, we'll get into it, but that, that was the really hard part of this episode, was just me reading all this and being like, okay, well, tell me the answer, and they'd be like, I don't know. Oh yeah, so spoilers and also just a heads up. Yeah, we don't have a. This isn't a. This is not a mystery with a concise uh, little bow. I have unlike a, what unlike I think, the Christmas presents under your tree. Yeah. This is not all wrapped this up. This is neat like and tidy. This is like if you opened a Christmas present, and it was more Christmas present inside, and then you opened the Christmas present, and it was another box, and then another mm-hmm. box. Yeah, and then I was gonna say. Box. Like when when your magician uncle gets you a present and it's one of those never-ending hankies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I made a hanky joke the other day and it didn't. It fell flat. But uh, I'm glad You're that kidding. we have the same uh, that we have the same fucking brain. Because I said something about like 
one of my friends was like, how do you consider clown work actual work? And I was like, how dare you? And I was like, and I, and I was like, I pretend to go get my keys and then I keep pulling out my lanyard and then I keep pulling it out and pulling it out and pulling yeah. it out until I eventually get to the keys. And they just looked at me with a straight face. And I was like, well, you didn't get it. I'm like, that's because yeah. that was implying that I was a clown. I was like, never mind. It's fine. And they were like, we know you're a clown, Jose. We know. Jose, we know. Uh, well, anyway, Mason. Are you ready to dive into this chilling cold case? Quite literally, because it takes place on a snowy mountain. You butcha. That's a you good one. Butcha. Can't believe I didn't make that connection. You yeah. you botcha. You bet you you botcha. You betcha. I think I got it. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I think I got it, and I don't know if you just doing that is helping anything. Well, Mason, put on your jacket, lace up your boots, turn on the wintry hog. That's our snowmobile. I don't know a good name for it. Because it's obvious. It's not the motorcycle. It's like a snowmobile, you know? <laughs> it's been, because it's been yeah, in storage all summer. We don't use it. <laughs> nope. <laughs> all right, Jose, get on. And, hold, and I've, hold got, me I've, got, I've got one of those, like, Russian-style. Oh, the uh, palm hat yeah, things. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I've got the flappy Russian one. Yes, yeah, yeah. That, like, buttons at the top? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dive into this tale. The Yuba County Five, or the Yuba City Five, depending on who you talk to, were a group of five men who all suffered from mild intellectual disabilities or psychological conditions. They were affectionately referred to as the boys by their parents and had all grown close after playing in a local basketball league. And Um, yes, it is funny to imagine Billy Butcher (laughs) being in this story, but he's not. But he's not, unfortunately. There's no Billy Butcher. There's no Frenchie. There's no Mother's Milk. Uh There's no Kimiko. There's no Huey, maybe, could be in this. Dennis Quaid's son, nowhere to be seen. On the night of February 24th, 1978, the group drove up to watch a college basketball game at California State University, Chico. They were never seen alive again. Four of them would be found in a bizarre manner, miles from their destination, and one, Gary Mathias, would never be found. But just how exactly did this all come to pass? And what exactly happened to Mathias? Well, let's do a little bit of Captain's Log backtracking. And, and and just a disclaimer, we're going to mainly focus on Gary Mathias um, and and just sort of a general overlook of the other ones. But to me, the, he's at the heart of this since he's the one that's still missing. So I've chosen for this story to focus on him. That doesn't mean I'm trying to eliminate the others in any sense, just for the sake of time and story. In a, and the narrative. sake of a story, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gary Mathias was born on October 15th, 1952. Matthias was a native of Yuba City and first began to show signs of mental illness in high school, being hospitalized during his sophomore year. After graduating from high school, Matthias joined the army. While he was stationed in West Germany in the early 1970s, he began dabbling in drug use and quickly began abusing. This would eventually lead to him being diagnosed with schizophrenia and being given a psychiatric discharge. Whether the correlation between the drug abuse uh, led to the 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 diagnosis is up to 
well, you I mean, to there determine, but it certainly did induced- Drug-induced schizophrenia is a thing that can happen, but it, I, from what I know about it, it normally takes a long time. There's also, I forgot to mention this, there was also an incident, he also wore very thick glasses because he would yes, see, he would yeah. have double vision without them. And this was a result of falling out of a moving vehicle as a child. Uh, uh, and so many believe injury. the head injury is what, because he didn't display any signs of mental illness until the accident. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So Matthias then returned to Yuba City to live with his mother and stepfather, but continued abusing drugs, some of which included methamphetamines. You don't want to abuse those. Nope. You don't even want to really do them recreationally. Uh, it's kind of impossible, too, from yeah. what I can tell. Yeah. He would then uh, he would go on to be arrested and jailed multiple times for violent offenses towards both women and men. Huh. So at least he didn't discriminate. It, okay. Way to look on the positive side, Jose. Finding himself hospitalized many times and therefore escaping many times. Once in 1974, he escaped a mental institution in his pajamas and walked and hitchhiked nearly 100 miles home. Which is impressive, but not as impressive as, in another instance, he walked from Portland, Oregon to Marysville, California... Roughly Jesus. 540 miles. He seems like a lot less charming version of Jack Nicholson in The One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm. You know? Yeah. Because, uh, and let me be honest, outfits in like 60s mental asylums, yeah. dope, right? The little tiny beanies yeah. and the yeah. ja- I love it. Yeah. But, uh, that's the yeah, only sounds, good part this of This sounds sad, though. By 1978, Matthias had been placed on medication as part of an outpatient uh, as part of outpatient care and was considered by his doctors to be a sterling success case. He was even holding down a job at his stepfather's gardening business, living off his wages from there as well as his disability pay from the army. By the time of his disappearance, 25-year-old Matthias had gone hey, two full years without a single episode. Me too. He's just like me for real. He is just like you for real, Mason. Yeah. yeah. I'm also not in the army. That's that is true. Right. Currently not in the army. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Through some series of events, Matthias, an avid fan of sports, began playing basketball at the Yuba City Vocational Rehabilitation Center, where he met Bill Sterling, twenty nine, Jack Hewitt, twenty four, Ted Ware. Weir? Weir, 32, and Jack Madruga, 30. The five. As a, I understand that you're not a sports person. I need to know, because you just gave us me a starting lineup and a sixth man, and I need to know what positions I don't they know. played. I don't know. I Come couldn't find that. On, I, I honestly, I honestly looked for that, because I was like, it would be interesting to see what you would think based on I, their positions, but I don't would, know. It would um, legitimately, I feel like, feel like it would help me picture them, and I right. feel like get a better sense of who they are if I knew who was p- power forward, small <laughs> yeah. forward, center, shooting guard, and point guard. Uh, I, I will also say, I actually forgot. Did to they add this run in. the triangle offense? Did they run the triangle? Uh, Were they picking poppers? Were they early adapters of the three? I mean, this is the seventies. I don't even know if the three point line had been introduced yet. I mean, this would have been like Larry Bird, they were MJ. Basketball. Yeah, this is fucked up, Jose. <laughs> I 
I, the problem of being like a closeted sports fan yeah, yeah. is that none of my friends like sports. Like I make Kim I watch the Ravens to, game with me but, every um, Sunday. Well, it's really funny because the the other day I was having a conversation with a coworker, and I was talking about how there had been a uh, a a short. So sorry, I got a little loud there. A short basketball player. I couldn't remember his name. It was uh, what's his Muggsy Bogues. Yes, that's who it was. And then I I was like, oh, it's Muggsy Bogues. And I only know him from Space Jam. And, uh, Jesus Christ. And then they went on to like, oh, yeah, dude, he like played blah, blah. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. He played for South Carolina right or Charlotte, I think. Yeah. Stop you right there. I don't know any of that. Mm-hmm. I just know he was short. He's also uh, equally short is Isaiah Thomas, who plays in the current, well, is no longer in the current league, but was uh, briefly playing and was a pretty good player for 5'8". Also shares a name with Isaiah Thomas, the point guard from the Pistons Bad Boys, who, in the year 1980, won a championship. Just two years after this story. Wow. Isaiah Thomas led the Detroit Pistons with a young Dennis Rodman onto the NBA Dennis Rodman, friends with Kim Jong-un. I know that. Also the greatest rebounder of all time. Friends with the North Korean dictator. I know that one. And so, Michael Jordan. <laughs> so anyway, oh, they at least played together. They might have been um, friends. I do. I do happen to know how that they be they they came to be friends. So he was actually uh, a part of the Yuba City Vocational Rehabilitation Center because he would meet with his. Um, I believe it was like his his counselor, his drug counselor mm-hmm. or something. And his drug counselor, Don, was his name, encouraged uh, Matthias to, to become involved in sports because he knew that he used to play in high school. Uh, right. And he was like, you would, you, it's a good outlet. And there, yeah. he literally, like, they were all, these guys were all friends already. And he brought Matthias and was like, hey, this guy wants to play some pickup with you guys. And they were like, all right, because oh, right, they only they only had four, so he would have made them a starting line. There might have been other people, but I think there was only them. Yeah. I need to know. I'm mad at you. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I know this is not your fault in the slightest. <laughs> I'm mad about it. The five quickly became friends and formed the the team, the Gateway Gators, uh, because the the place was called like the Gateway House uh, mm-hmm. or something like that. So the five were set to represent their town at a week-long tournament sponsored by the Special Olympics in Sacramento on February 25th, 1978. The winners of that tournament would receive a free week-long trip to Los Angeles. City of Angels, baby. Yeah. Uh, All five of the boys were said to be ecstatic and anxious for the game, with some of them even laying out their uniforms the night before. Uh, Ted even asked his mother to wash his new high-top sneakers, and Gary reminded his mother not to let him oversleep. Uh, and I will keep referring to them as the boys. That's because that was the nickname. They're obviously fully grown men. I don't mean the boys as in age-wise. We can call them the Gators. Sure. But then my uh, people might think they're from Florida. So. Right. Uh, so on the night of February 24th, 1978, the boys, the Gators, decided to drive up to Chico to cheer on the UC Davis team in an away game at Chico State. Madruga, the only member of the group besides Matthias, who had a license, drove the group in his much-beloved turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego, 50 miles north. The group was dressed in light coats to combat the cool temperatures of the Sacramento Valley at night at that time of the year. 
After UC Davis won the game, the boys climbed back into the Montego and drove a short distance from Chico State Campus to Bears Market in downtown Chico. Inside, they purchased snacks, sodas, and chocolate milk. The time was shortly before the store's 10 p.m. closing time, a detail the clerk recalled because they were annoyed that such a large group would come in right as they were about to close, which I totally relate to that. I get that. Yeah, Yeah. that's a very real, yeah. Although if you're working at just at like a gas station, it's like, what do you? You're not like making. You're not like making the food. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. It I'm just, sorry. That's it, I'm being a class trader. Fuck them. Don't come into stores when they're about to close, no matter no, what don't, they are. Don't. Uh, it just reminds me of when I worked at the coffee shop in Oskaloosa, and people mm. would see us wiping shit down, and they'd be like, "Can we come in?" And I'd be like, yeah. "No, no, no. Fuck off." And like I would have. Oskaloosa already... has a real thing where if a door's locked, people will knock on it, and yeah. it's like obviously no. Like, con- and like, let me in. It's like what? No. Uh-huh. What? And you're fucked if you have like one. There's a few managers that are like, "Well, it's our job." And it's no, like the fuck it, it's it was not annoying our job. because I I don't even remember any of the people's names, but I, there were there was like one or two times where I had cleaned the fucking ice cream machine already, and these yeah. fucking high schoolers came in and they were like, "Well, we have to let them in because technically we don't close for like another five minutes." And I was like, "Fuck off!" <laughs> I'm like, yeah. "No!" And then they yeah. came in and all ordered shakes, and I had to make them all shakes after I had already cleaned the. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, other witnesses from that night would recall the men driving south down Route 70, a straight shot home. Yet none of them would ever be seen alive by their families again. After attending a basketball game the night before, they were due to compete at a Special Olympics playoff tournament. Five men went missing in mysterious circumstances. Ted uh, what Weir's mother, uh, Emojin, uh, woke up around 5 a.m., with an inexplicable feeling of dread in her heart. She got up and checked in on Ted, who was nowhere to be found. She then called Bill's mother, Juanita, who had been awake since 2 a.m., and learned that Bill had also never made it home. Slowly, the families all came to realize that none of the boys had come home, and since Matthias was the only one to ever spend the entire night out, they began to panic. So the families notified the police. Police in Butte and Yuba County <laughs> began to... <laughs> it's, it's, it's Butte, but it's spelled B-U-T-T-E. Yeah. Uh, they began to look for the men along their originally intended route to no avail. Some days later, on February 27th, a Plumas National Forest Ranger told investigators he had seen a car matching the description of that belonging to Madruga parked in the forest along Oroville Quincy Road, but hadn't thought anything of it since it was not uncommon for people to drive up that way and go cross-country skiing. It wasn't until he had seen the bulletin that he reached out to authorities and led them to the car. Inside, authorities found the discarded wrappers and containers of the snacks the men had purchased and signs that no one had been in the vehicle since the men seemingly abandoned it. But the discovery of the Montego did not answer any questions. It instead raised many more. And I've included the map here. It's weird too, because like that's the end. Like, there's no other like information. There's it certainly doesn't get weirder from here. Uh, It's just normal. uh, People are gone from now on. Well, not quite, Mason. 
also but yes wait, so there's uh, more yeah so if you uh, look yes. at this i've included and i'll put this online for uh in, in on our socials for the the listeners so yeah effectively though cheek the where the basketball game is is directly e- uh, west yeah almost of where their car was well, found and it's also and like a direct south. a direct straight shot south so yes. for them to end up where they were doesn't make any sense it had they to be intentional on some mm-hmm. level yeah to do that because yeah. like yeah we'll get i mean we're gonna get into all of that but yes. yeah the first it, it it doesn't it's you'd have to it's hard to get lost that badly yes i mean it's not impossible but it it seems like it would be pretty hard to get lost but, that badly. but okay so like say you take the the you're coming down say you accidentally take that left uh, near Oroville, right? And you get onto the 70. Yeah. Say you actually right. get onto Route 70 heading uh, eastbound. Especially if they're, right, so they're in they're in Chico. Right. And they go south on 149, and you have to get on 70 to get back to Yuba City. Right. But if you, if you take a left, uh, you get onto 70, but going uh, like south. northeast. Right, yeah. So let's say instead that, Instead yeah. of south, which is where they're supposed let's to be. Let's say going. they did that, right? That right. doesn't account for them getting so far into the mountain on those mountain roads. They would right. have known to flip back around because they would well, clearly see that they were not on the main interstate. And even if, say, they didn't even realize they went the wrong direction and they were like, well, the town should be around here and started looking, they're going to realize they're on a mountain and not in a valley. Right. Yeah. We're going to get into all that, but yes. Good. So the first important question was the location in which the Montego was found. 70 miles from Chico and out of the way of any route to Yuba City. The men's families also couldn't comprehend why the men would have traveled so far off the course the night before a game they had been looking forward to for literally every second of the d- every day since it was announced, right? Like they were insanely excited for this. Madruga's parents would also add that he did not like cold weather and had never been to the mountains. Sterling's father had taken his son to the area once on a fishing trip, but the boy had spent most of the time upset and never returned with him on any subsequent trips. Shout out dads dads everywhere, man. Yeah. (laughs) Taking your kids that are too young, doing one of your favorite old man activities, and then being like, I don't understand why he hates it. Yeah, exactly. That sounds like I'm throwing shade at my dad. I'm not. I just, I always love that, like, 70s, like, let's go out deep in the woods, my five-year-old son, and then being like, why are you, why can't you sit still and fish? Yeah, and, and it's funny, too, because, like, I always tell my dad, I'm like, man, if you had... If we had started that now, I'd be super into it. Yeah, but right. When you took me when I was ten to like go ride horses deep in the mountain when I just wanted to play video games, yeah, I was not into it. Now I'm like, that sounds incredible, man. Yeah, you know. Anyway, yeah. And now it's that the, I want to do it, he's like, no. It's the cruelty <laughs> like, of time. Cool. Cats in the cradle, man. Cats in the cradle. So police were also puzzled as to why the men had abandoned the car. See, the men had reached an elevation of 4,400 feet, just where the snow line was at that time of the year and short of where the road was closed for the winter. The car had become stuck in a snowdrift, and there was evidence that the men had tried to spin the wheels to get out of it, but the snow was not very deep at that spot, and five healthy young men would have been more than capable of pushing the car out. The keys to the Montego were also nowhere to be found, 
leading officers to believe the men abandoned the car with the intention of returning. When authorities hotwired the car, it started perfectly fine and even had a quarter tank of gas. When the vehicle was further examined, it was found that the undercarriage had no dents or mud scrapes, which led officers to believe that either the driver had driven with extreme caution or had an intimate knowledge of the mountain, which Madruga did not have and his family found it extremely difficult to believe that he would willingly let anyone else drive. He was so particular about this car, did not ever let anybody else drive it. The car was also left unlocked with a window partially rolled down, which was also out of character for Madruga to do. After investigators themselves almost became lost in the snow, uh, further uh, efforts were called off until the bad weather would subside, only five days after the investigation had begun. No further trace of the men was found at that time. With local and media... I think- Sorry. Oh, sorry, I just want to mention, and I don't know, maybe this is the incorrect thing to say, but I just think it's important that these aren't, I, you know, in the 70s, and the first time I heard this story, it's easy to imagine that these men are mentally impaired to a point that, like, all of this seems possible, right. but it wasn't like that in the slightest. So, uh, and if we're covering that, we can just skip this, too, it's just... No, no, I mean, I, it, it's fine if we talk about it here or there. It doesn't really matter. But, yes, yeah, so this is a sentiment that um, I was talking to a friend about this case, and that was immediately the first thing they said. was like, oh, well, you know, they got lost because they, like, couldn't function. That's incorrect. That's an incorrect thing right. that was, again, it was the attitude of the 70s to be like right. these. And, God. And it permeates if, our society to today. He, I can't even repeat some of the headlines of the, the newspapers of the time that I encountered. Yeah. I can't even repeat right. them. It was horrible, I mean, horrible media you, coverage. You guys I mean, can imagine, I, right? Right. Well, I mean, growing up, I mean, I can't speak for you, uh, but I mean, I know like myself that like even words today that I'm like, there's absolutely no way I would say that were fine. You know what I mean? Yeah, but but I'm saying like they were calling, you know what I mean? Like in, in right. how the newspaper, they were just writing them off as being these unfunctional, yes. incapable in, in, in function. I'm just we need to, you know, that it's it's not like we're this, that stigma is so far in the past that we're completely past it. You know what I mean? That right. Like, it, like, I remember a time where it was super uncool, and it's a good thing that things change. I don't mm-hmm. want to get in my uh, soap comedy box. soapbox, but, yeah. like, I also, I hate it when people are like, I said it. And it's like, yeah, that's okay. It, we're not, yeah. No one's mad at you. You just, you have to learn to not. And we don't, then be right? like don't anymore you know what i mean it's like change but, that's all you have to do but there was definitely the sentiment i would say among authorities and media at the time that yes. that was like well you know these type right. of boys got themselves lost because they're these type of boys but again right. uh i didn't mention this but aside from the beginning there um yes they all had mainly learning disabilities uh some right. mental yes. disabilities but aside from uh Matthias, who was the only one who was diagnosed with um, schizophrenia or some sort of mental disability, uh, the rest had, you know, well, like some of them were described as, you know, having a low IQ, not being able to mm-hmm. read, um, but like they were still functioning. They were, they were describe, highly functioning people. You could uh, describe it as, I mean, I don't think, I don't know if, uh, if Asperger's was, it's no longer a thing, right? Asperger's doesn't exist. I don't know. I know that. No, it doesn't. I'm just saying, oh, but okay. at that time, I believe. It would have been that kind of considered of a very high functioning like autism yeah, or something like well, that. that was I'm not I, saying that's what they had. That's just you can equate it 
in these days terms to what, like imagine someone that has very high functioning autism. Yeah. Or, so so what I yeah. ran into throughout this research was a lot of people saying that like nowadays probably one or two among the group would be uh, diagnosed um, as being on the spectrum in some sort of manner. The right, rest of yeah. them would be diagnosed with just an intellectual disability, not being able right. to to you know. Yep. whatever i i was a teaching assistant for a year at a charter school and my job was to like work with the the, the kids who had learning disabilities because that was like mainly the whole point of that school and uh they were completely functioning children right uh right. who just happened to have a little trouble reading or, or learning a certain thing which is it's fine right um, yeah. and, and so, yeah, so I want to say that if, if you have that idea in your mind as we go through the story of, well, oh, well, because, you know, they were handicapped or they were disabled, no, Put, cast that right. aside because that really does not play into the story much. And also, we, I would also, on behalf of the podcast, like to apologize uh, for the sense that we are trying our best. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yes. That whole conversation, it's not like we're super well informed no, on yeah. the best way to approach the lingo, these. The lingo, the nuances yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. I, every day I'm learning new things. And, and if anyone has anything they would like to share on this or, yes. or further enlighten us, please yes. do so. Please, Feel free. Please. please let us know on any comments. Email us, whatever. Right. So moving we, on. We love, we love you. Yes, we, we do. Uh, with local media coverage came the calls of sightings. Uh, as per usual, most reported sightings were usually useless and dismissed, but two stood out as potentially credible to investigators. The first came from a 55-year-old Joseph Schons of Sacramento. Uh, Schons would tell investigators that he had spent the night of the 24th near where the Montego was found. As he owned a cabin in the area and had traveled up to check the snowpack, ahead of the weekend trip with his family. Sean's would also become stuck in the snow, and in the process of trying to free his car, he began to experience symptoms of a heart attack. He retired to his car and kept the engine running in an attempt to stay warm as he recovered. Six hours later, as he lay in his car under extreme pain, he saw headlights coming up behind him, and when he looked out, he saw a car parked behind him with a group of people around it, one of which appeared to be a woman holding a baby. He then called to the party for help, only for them to stop talking and turn their headlights off. After some time passed, he saw more lights behind him. Flashlights this time. He once again called, up, uh, called out, and once again, the group stopped talking and turned out their lights. He would tell police he thought a pickup truck also parked behind him briefly before continuing down the mountain, but could not be certain as his pain was extremely high at that time, and he was almost delirious. After walking eight miles the next morning to a lodge for help, he was driven home by a ranger, and they passed the Montego behind his car. Yeah, just, he just to be clear, this could be a podcast episode on its fucking own yeah. of a man. Just, uh, just a, the gruffest '70s man you know, just mm. physically fighting back a heart attack on, in the mountain in his car in the middle of the night. Yeah. And then just being like, all right, that's passed. I better walk eight <laughs> fucking miles. Yeah, I can't even walk a mile, man. Yeah. I can't walk eight miles without a heart attack. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. So uh, Weir's mother would comment that ignoring someone's pleas for help was not like her son at all. I think part of a lot. I So what I know about this story is a lot of the parents are like, that's not like my son. Yeah. And... I'm not trying to disagree with that either. But a lot I, but of it is family. 
being like, yeah, that's my I mean, family. yeah, that's my mom would say of... the same thing about me. Yeah. When in reality, yeah. other people would if be you, like, Jose would totally. If do you that. if you died if with cocaine on your nose and a bunch of strippers around you, your mom would be like, "That's not Jose at all." But I'd be like, "That was that's yeah, exactly Jose. <laughs> that's exactly Jose. That's who Jose was to a T." Yeah. So the other credible sighting came from a woman who worked at a store in the small town of Brownsville, about 30 miles from where the car was found. On March 3rd, after seeing the flyers asking for information on the men's whereabouts, the woman told deputies that four of the boys had stopped at the store in a red pickup truck the day after the disappearance. Her account would be corroborated by the store owner. She would go on to tell investigators that two of the men, who she identified as Hewitt and Sterling, were in a telephone booth outside while the other two went inside. The store owner would also add that Hewitt and Weir uh, then came into the store and purchased burritos, chocolate milk, and soda. So I guess whoever... So Sterling... That part confused me because... So originally... uh, Right. Hewitt and Sterling were outside and then Weir and uh, Madruga... Uh, uh, came inside or Matthias we don't know because she said it was only four of them but they only positively right. identified Hewitt Weir and Sterling right. and then in one my, of them switched basically in my opinion I guess to me it would make the most sense if it was if it was all of them but Matthias that's what I imagined is that it's all right, and I don't. Yeah, and we'll get more into that, but yeah, that seems to make the most sense sense to me. So Hewitt's brother would tell authorities that Hewitt hated using phones, and he would often have to answer calls for him, even when other members of the group called home. So the idea of Hewitt being on the phone for fifteen minutes or whatever was strange because he had this 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 just he wouldn't do it. Right. So as the months pass. But I think it's important to mention the cooperation of the snacks bought at the exactly. that, this gas station and the versus the market right. that we know for sure they were at. I think that adds a lot of... Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's for sure them, but it does add at least a, a monochrome of uh, credibility yeah. to it. So it also depends, I guess, on how that information came about. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, was, I would hope that the police weren't like, did they come in and buy like chocolate milk and sodas? Right. But, you know, it's also police in the 70s, so... We'll get into the police work in this. Mm, Uh, It's good. uh, So as the months passed and the snow thawed, the boys came to be known in the media as the Yuba County Five, and speculation on their fates was rampant among people. Theories ranged from simple carjacking to kidnapping by hippies. Their families would tell the media, We definitely feel something has happened, but we also feel like they are alive. Finally, on June... Which is not... That's a pretty vague statement. Yes. Uh, finally, on June 4th, 1978, a breakthrough came in the case. A group of motorcyclists had made their way up to a deserted trailer maintained by the United States Forest Service used by backpackers. The trailer was deep in the woods, about 19.4 miles from where the Montego had been found. Other sources say that it was only 11 miles, but this is what's been reported is 19.4. Uh, they found the front window of the trailer broken, and where and when they went inside, they were met with a grisly scene. An overwhelming odor filled the trailer, an odor brought about by the decaying remains of Ted Weir. Weir's body was wrapped in eight sheets on the bed. His autopsy would reveal he had died of starvation and hypothermia. 
He had lost nearly 200 pounds, and his beard was overgrown, suggesting he had lived slightly over three months since he had last shaved. They said about 8 to 13 weeks, which means which, if yeah. they had only gone up a little bit sooner, they mm-hmm. would have found him alive, and we're going to get into this later on, but right. they had the opportunity, they were going to, Yuba County Police stopped them from doing it. It's pretty hard to imagine a situation in which you have a map of known like cabins and locations within the surrounding area of that car being found and you don't check on them in a a normal time frame they initially didn't go in because the snowstorms were so bad i think about early march uh uh yeah around early march or late march i think the u.s forestry service tried to go uh, wanted to go up and investigate i think it was either butte or yuba county authorities that did not ass- said they were they would not assist on the on the case at that time because it was still too dangerous to go up there because they didn't want to get lost themselves and so the, it was called off and they even waited until they the snow a, thawed i it bothers even me though they, they had snow had radios yeah. and snow cats and which is if which I is mean, why people can, later speculate that maybe the police know something Right, because if you can imagine these men in light jackets making it and then living for this long, or for at least three months, you can imagine that maybe a uh, well-armed, well-backupped, well-trained force would have been very easily able to make it to them and save them, or at least keep bringing them supplies. Or save one or two of them, or whatever. Or bring them supplies, yeah, like you said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So... His feet were badly frostbitten and uh, gangrenous. On the bedside table next to him with his wa- was his wallet with cash still inside, a nickel ring with Ted engraved on it, a gold necklace he wore, and a gold watch without its crystal, which the families of the boys would later comment did not belong to any of them. His shoes were nowhere to be found. Investigators were stumped as to how Weir had come to meet his fate. As inside the trailer, there was more than enough supplies to keep him alive throughout the winter. The trailer had a fireplace with plenty of matches and books to use as kindling. Heavy winter clothes, uh, which would have kept him warm, were never removed from their storage place, nor had the dozens of rations of dehydrated meals, fruit cocktails, and propane tanks, which fueled heat into the trailer, been touched. All of which would have kept all five men alive for a year. A dozen sea ration cans from the nearby storage shed were opened and the contents were consumed. Uh, But they had to be opened with a P-38 can opener, which only Matthias or Madruga would have been familiar with since they had served in the military where the opener was common. This led investigators to speculate that Weir was not alone in the trailer. Weir's family did comment that Weir seemingly lacked common sense as a result of his mental disability, citing an incident in which his bedroom roof caught fire and he had to be dragged out of his room because he was afraid he would miss his job the next morning if he got up. Um, and he was the one that I think uh, uh, the, my research said that like today he would have probably been big diagnosed as, as mm-hmm. uh, autistic or on the spectrum. Yeah. Um, the following day, investigators would find two more bodies, those belonging to Madruga and Sterling on opposite sides of the road, about 11.4 miles from where the Montego had been found. Madruga's body had been partially consumed by scavengers. Only bones remained of Sterling, uh, and the bones had been scattered over a small area. Autopsies would reveal both men had succumbed to hypothermia. 
Deputies would hypothesize that one of them had given in to the need for sleep that comes with hypothermia while the other stayed by his side and eventually died the same way. Uh, they also believed that they died on the way to the cabin, never making it. Two days later, as the investigation continued to comb the area, more remains were found. And this is really tragic. Uh, Hewitt's father discovered his son's backbone under a manzanita bush about two miles northeast of the trailer. His shoes and jeans were also found nearby and were used to identify the body. The following day, his skull was found by a deputy sheriff 300 feet downhill from the bush. His death was also attributed to hypothermia. Uh, it just sucks that his dad had to be the one to find him. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A quarter mile northwest of the trailer, searchers found three Forest Service blankets and a rusted flashlight. The length of time that those items had been there could not be determined. No sign of Matthias, aside from his shoes left behind in the trailer, was found. Investigators speculated that Matthias had removed his shoes and taken those of Weir as they were a larger size and would have been more comfortable on his swollen, frostbitten feet as he ventured into the wilderness. Fearing for any encounter with the now non-medicated Matthias, authorities distributed his pictures to mental, mental institutions all over California, but to this day no trace of him has been found. At the time of this recording, Gary Matthias has been missing for 45 years Nine months and 17 days. Which would only put him at like 70, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Which isn't, I mean, it's very possible that had he survived this, he would still be alive. Yes. I mean, all of them would, but yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. So, there are a number of questions unanswered in this case, obviously. First off, right. how did the boys come to end up oh. in such a remote part of the forest in an area that they were unfamiliar with? I think first off is what positions did they play on the basketball team? Yes, that's the most important one for Mason. Yes. Uh, second off, why did they abandon a perfectly working vehicle? Who were the people that Joseph Shuns saw that night? And if it was the boys, who was the mother of the baby seen with them? Why? I don't know. See, I think it could have been them, but I feel like they had a gallon of chocolate milk. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know. It just we're gonna seems get into, like we're going to get into Joseph okay. Shuns in a second. Perfect. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Okay. Why did Ted Weir starve for weeks rather than break into the rations? If that the boys one is the best question I have. If the boys were seen by the store clerk, where was Matthias at the time, and why did they return to the mountain? And whose red pickup truck were they in? And what happened to the car keys? And of course, what happened to Gary Matthias? There are a number of theories that seek to answer these questions, but investigators mainly stick to a loose picture of the events that transpired that cold February night. I don't take kindly to you kids coming up here to my mountain. Your mountain? Huh? I'm sure the Washingtons would be very surprised to hear that. <laughs> well, the mountain don't belong to me, it's true. After learning that Matthias had friends in a small town of, in, in the small town of Forbes Town, just a lot of towns called Ville or Town in this area, yeah. uh, authorities believed it was possible that it, in an attempt to visit them on their way home, Madruga took a wrong turn near Oroville and ended up on the mountain road. However, this was later disputed because when investigators went and talked to those friends, they had said that they hadn't talked to Matthias in over a year. So it was unlikely that they that, that he would come to, to to visit them. Did he know they lived there? Yes, 
in okay. in, in in Forbes Town, yeah. And I guess maybe my other question, and maybe we'll get into this too, was, and I I think I don't know if it's just the way that this narrative is being portrayed. Was Matthias the like quote unquote leader of this group? Did he have a lot of sway in like the decision making and like how the others what the others did? We'll get into that because okay. I believe certainly that the narrative is presented like that, but upon further research, it kind of seems like Matthias was the fifth wheel, and they right. were all much closer to each other than they were to Matthias. There's even right. some sources that say they didn't want him to come to the basketball game, but were kind of scared of him, so they let him come along. Gotcha. Um, and so, yeah, we'll get into that, but... Anyway, for unknown reasons, the men abandoned the Montego and rather than go back to the road they had just traveled up, uh, back to the lodge they had passed, they decided to continue up the road they were on. It should be mentioned that purposeful motion like this is not consistent with the circular patterns that most disoriented travelers follow when they believe themselves to be genuinely lost, which is an interesting part of information that I did not learn until this case, but normally when people are lost, they go in a circular motion. And these guys traveled pretty, like, purposefully straight, which is which is what stumps investigators because it's not it's very unlike people who are lost. So does that mean? Uh, do, I, this is just out of pure curiosity on my part. Does if you're lost, is it that they think they're going straight and are mm-hmm. actually going in a circle? That's okay. why often when you see like depictions of people being lost, they'll be like, "We've passed that tree already." because right, well, you tend to right, you know, gotcha. circle back okay. or whatever. Uh, so the day before the men went missing, a USFS snowcat, that's United States Forest Service, uh, had gone in the direction of the road to clear the snow off the trailer roof so it would not collapse. It is possible that the men decided to follow tracks uh, through four to six feet high snow, believing shelter was not too far away. Also, the snowcats would have packed the snow down, which would have made it easier to walk on the snow. Uh, Madruga and Sterling most likely died of hypothermia along the way, and it is assumed that when they found the trailer, Matthias, Hewitt, and Weir broke the window since the front door was locked. Given their upbringings and mental disabilities, it is believed that the men were fearful of the consequences of entering a private property and did not touch anything else they found in the trailer out of fear of punishment. Which I will say, like... Makes sense. I mean... I don't know, like, a lot of people who would die instead of doing that, but, but I, f- I feel that, right? That, like, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm imagining, maybe not now as the person I am, but, you know, assuming with their, like, uh, with developmental problems, uh, yes. issues, and things like that, I could see, if you're stuck in, like, a more, in a, in a younger state, I would also have been, like, oh, man, I don't want to touch their shit, I'm going to get in yeah, trouble for I, it. I have a cousin who, who, um... Uh, who was on the spectrum and, and, and he was always uh, like when he was, when he was younger, if his mom would tell him like, don't move from this spot, he wouldn't move from that spot at all. Even if you were like coming towards him with shit and you'd be like, all right, buddy, excuse me. He would just Mm -hmm. stay there. Yeah. Because he didn't want to get in trouble. Right. So it kind of makes sense to me. Maybe Um, it's, I mean, in lieu of how weird of a fucking mystery this is, I guess, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. After Weir had died, or at least Hewitt and Matthias thought him to be dead, the two decided to travel back to civilization, getting split up along the way, either because Hewitt succumbed to the elements or for other reasons. 
Uh, investigators would also later add that since Matthias was a paranoid schizophrenic, he could have entered a hallucinogenic state and as the de facto leader of the group, led the boys deep into the woods in his deluded state. Madruga's mother would tell reporters, There was some force that made him go up there. They wouldn't have fled off into the woods like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. And Weir's sister-in-law would add to this narrative, saying, They seen something at that game, at that parking lot. They might have seen it and didn't even realize they had seen it. And uh, I don't understand that. So I think she's saying, like, they saw something that they Uh didn't even realize was bad, but they saw something they weren't supposed to see, and whoever was perpetrating said thing was like, we got to get those guys. Okay, gotcha. Um, So that was like the – that's kind of like the loose uh, series of events that police believe happened. That's That's like the the working theory. The main line, like, it takes some liberties, but it, it's as close to a believable narrative right. in every aspect. And it's the best that the puzzle pieces fit. And now and I'm I don't just disagree gonna, with it, to yeah. be honest. And I'm now we're going to add some information here, right? So Matthias's father also added that perhaps the men didn't start a fire in the trailer because they were afraid of being found by some pursuing force. To this day, we have less answers than we do questions about this case. Then the Yuba count that that then Yuba County Sheriff Jack Beecham described as bizarre as hell. Foul play was never ruled out in this case, and as of twenty but as of twenty twenty, a new development came to light in this decades old case. Thanks to the Yuba County Five podcast from Mopac Audio, who received a digitalized listen to. You listen to it? I think so. Oh. Well they received a digitized copy of the case from police. We now know that an internalized memo from October 8, 2020 was sent by the sheriff with an update on the official stance towards Gary Mathias. The memo reads, Gary Mathias is believed to be a victim of foul play. This case remains open as a missing person as a missing person slash homicide case. It is in the best interest of all involved that this letter not be forwarded to the Mathias family. So this, to me opens up more questions than it gives answers. What right. led investigators to this conclusion? That right. Matthias was the victim of foul play and not the others. Or were the others also victims of foul play, right? But up until this right. case, they've all said that they all perished of hypothermia. Right. So what makes them believe that Matthias was a victim of foul play? Uh, right. I do want to bring up, um, I believe it was Madruga, Kathy Madruga, a aunt or sister of, uh, of uh, Madruga, uh, who wanted to follow up on the theory of them visiting um, Matthias's friends in Forbestown, and she drove to Forbestown with some family members. Uh, one of them one of them would come with her to the supposed address, and the other would stay in the car. I didn't include this because this is a lot of, like, he, sh- he said, she said. Or he said, she, yeah. Uh, but um, fuck it, why not? And she says that she she goes to the to the tr- to this trailer where uh, she believed uh, his friends lived, and it was like a trailer with some sheds behind the trailer. She saw a woman with a baby in the window, and a little girl off in the woods who was watching them from the woods, uh, and they had driven by like a lot of like gruff looking people who were like armed, right? Sure. And. Um, and and later on, Madruga's family would kind of take the stance against Matthias. So this kind mm-hmm. of 
adds to that belief that like Matthias was running with the wrong kind of people or whatever. Right. Uh, but she said that uh, she had this overwhelming sense that in one of the sheds that was locked up pretty tight, someone was in there. And she was like, mm. Matthias is in there. And so she mm. goes to the shed and she starts pounding on it but doesn't hear anything. She keeps pounding on it, doesn't hear anything, but she's like, he's in this shed. So she goes to a nearby shed to try to grab something to break into it, at which point her uh, family member who was in the car yells at her to get back to the car. She goes back to the car. There's a man there with a shotgun, and he's telling them to leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, she says that she's not leaving until they bring him Gary, bring them Gary Mathias, and he pumps the shotgun, and he says leave. So they leave. She tells the police this. The police say that they went and investigated on horseback and didn't find anything. She says she doesn't believe this because uh, she says that the air, that the area looked like it was booby trapped, and it was well known that it was booby trapped. And if police had gone on horses, the horses wouldn't have made it up there because they would have stepped on some sort of trap or something. Again, this is all like obviously grieving family coming up with stuff. I don't know if I believe that this interaction happened or not. It is I don't just know. believable enough. Mm-hmm. But it does feel, I mean, in cases like this, like, obviously, people want an answer that's easy to understand, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is why all conspiracy theories exist, right? Right. Is because in a void of understanding something, people will would rather a most fantastical uh, thing happen. Yeah. Instead of the ex- exception, or the I mean, also uh, except for accepting the fact that like sometimes just really shitty things happen and there's no good explanation. Also, for if it, you right? came to my house, I don't care if you're looking for your missing family member. You start pounding on my shit, I'm gonna be like, hey, get the yeah. fuck out, you know? Well, sure, but I mean, I don't know. I it's I go back and forth on it because on one hand, I do feel like Matthias might have more to this than is yeah, originally and, and, thought, and, and, and but we'll get we'll get we'll get a little bit into that. Here. But on the other um, hand, I feel like part of that is just me being like, I want, you know what I mean? Just yes. trying to like it being, filling a conspiracy theory, you know, <laughs> doing it myself mm-hmm. of like, it's the one thing I can believe. So I want it to be true. Well, there is a fascinating bit of information that I had previously not heard associated with this case that came after author Drew Hurst Beeson interviewed family members of the five for his book, Out of Bounds, What Happened to the Yuba County Five? A little... Uh, little too snarky on the title. Yeah. Uh, it's, a ba- it's a basketball reference. Uh, no, I got it. I got that. Okay. As, I got that bit. Um, after interviewing Tammy, uh, Matthias's niece, and asking her what she believed uh, led to... Well, I've seen her uh, reported as his niece, but I've also seen her reported as his sister. I'm not sure which it is. Gotcha. Uh, but anyway, after interviewing Tammy... And asking her what she believed led the men to climb the mountain in the first place, she relayed a story that had been told to a Lieutenant Ayers by a man related to the owner of Bears Market, who then told the Matthias family. Reportedly, a group of men approached Jackie Hewitt in the parking lot of the store and began taunting him, at which point Matthias jumped in to defend him and a fight broke out. The fight would be stopped after the store clerk stepped in and the author couldn't find any reporting of this from the time but a woman claiming to be hewitt's sister-in-law posted to a true crime blog stating that she believed the men who had started the fight at bears market chased the boys up the mountain after they left the store and caused them to get lost perhaps Mm. explaining why the boys abandoned the car and fled into the woods uh, forward rather than back the way they had come 
Gotcha. The author also managed to get in contact with Mary Hewitt, uh, Jackie's sister, uh, with her daughter-in-law, Brandy, who revealed that in a conversation with David, Jack Hewitt's younger brother, he had clarified to her the rumors about shell casings having been found at the car, because there was a rumor going around after the car was found that there had been shell casings. He confirmed to her that the shell casings had been found, most likely believed to have come from shots fired meant to scare the boys off, but no official mm. reporting was ever stated about shell right. casings being found. But this whole story does back up um, the man who had the heart attacks yes. story of like possibly a pickup truck coming up yes. and them pulling up and running out into the woods and then a pickup truck coming up later and yeah. Yes. Now, before I get into this other theory that came about, I do want to give a little bit of background of, on Joseph Shuns. Mm-hmm. Through his, his work on this book, this author talked to a neighbor of Joseph Shuns who actually brings into question the character of Joseph Shuns and actually describes him as a much different person than what's been played out in mm. the story of this. Apparently, Joseph Shuns was, specu- reportedly, uh, was mm-hmm. a bit of a Allegedly. drunk allegedly, was a bit of a drunk who did not get along well with his wife. So the idea of him going to spend a weekend away with his family in the mountains didn't seem right. He was a well-known drunk who liked to uh, insert himself into the narrative of things. Uh, Mm. And he also drove a Volkswagen Beetle, which, according to the research, uh, did not have heating capabilities at the time unless it was in motion. So this whole thing of him saying he stayed in the car with it on to keep warm would not have worked because Volkswagen Beetles, the heater only ran if the car was moving. Gotcha. Um, So that kind of brings that into question. Um, Basically, I would take with a grain of salt anything that Joseph Shun said. That's what I believe now after having done research on this. And I mean, to be fair, I think think we should remind people that Witnesses to things are notoriously, I mean, they're good, but one witness to a thing is notoriously difficult to believe. Yes. Even in the best case of circumstances. Like, people's, any, even the best person you know, their view of how an event went down can be drastically altered or changed by a dozen different things. Mm -hmm. Then adding in the heart attack idea. Right. Terrify, you know what I mean? There's no real... He himself said that he wasn't even sure he saw the, the pickup truck because he was such in such a delirious state right. of pain. Right, and that's assuming everything he says is even true. It's still right. very... You still want to take it with a grain of yeah. salt, now entering in even more um, doubt from this neighbor's interview. Right. But this is also the thing with this case, right? Is like all of this stuff that's being presented is just like, this guy who talked to this guy said this. Exactly. You know what I mean? And there's exactly. no clear-cut information no. on any no. of this no. except for the shit that's fucking super mysterious. Right. Like all the answers are super convoluted and, uh, you know, are a, a, a private uh, family member driving and getting into a shotgun thing and police maybe looking into it on horseback and yeah. a brother's nephew's sister-in-law. It's just, right. it's a lot of shit. Yes. And let's muddy the waters even more. So there Hell has long yeah. been a theory floating around that Matthias was killed and dumped in the Oroville Dam. Tammy believes this theory came from a man named Alan Martin. A couple of months after the bodies were found, Martin went to the Matthias family and told them his guilty conscience had forced him to finally come forward. He 
He told the Matthias family that on the night of the boys' disappearance, he and a group of others stopped the boys on the Oroville Dam and taunted Jackie Hewitt, slapping him to hear him whine, because I guess Jackie Hewitt had this, this, this funny way that he would whine when he became upset. Mm-hmm. Matthias then jumped in, and somehow Matthias was thrown off the dam. Martin would then claim that Glenn Baker uh, drove the boys in Madrugo's car up the mountain because he knew the road and forced them out and scared them off into the woods, hoping they would just die because or they just, had yeah. or get lost or whatever because they had witnessed this and they didn't know what to do and they thought, well, we'll throw them in the wilderness, right? Right, yeah. By the time they, if even if assuming they live, by the time they get back, they'll be so shocked by the right. shit that happened in the woods that they'll, yeah. Forget us, basically. And then also that, that would help them abandon the car out in the wilderness. Right. And then, and then he was picked up in the pickup truck, whoever. This, however, is not a credible story to me um, because it doesn't account for Matthias's shoes being found in the trailer or the supposed hand yeah. notes because there was another bit of tit, uh, information that came out that Tammy claims she went to the trailer and at the trailer she discovered notes that looked like they were written by Matthias. After taking them to a handwriting expert, it was like a, it was a match, and which, uh, which brain is handwriting, for handwriting exactly. experts. But, uh, okay, but uh, she claims that uh, she gave the notes to the police and they were never returned. Uh, which, well, yeah, they would just keep them. If as they evidence, were evidence, then know. yeah, yeah, that's yeah, kind of yeah. how that works. That's not really mysterious there. Um, but yeah, so to me, that theory, and then it is kind of weird though because Alan Martin tells the Matthias family this, and then two days later. He dies of a heroin overdose, which Jesus. is weird because he was a pill user and had never really gotten into heroin. And then he dies of a heroin overdose, and his friends bring him to another location because they thought he was just asleep. And then the next morning, one of the friend's sister finds him, calls the police, and then he's discovered dead. Interesting. Yeah, that's... I, I mean, don't know. It's weird. Heroin is bad, and it uh, yeah, can I mean, kill you. But, like, if you remove the disappearance and murder aspect of this, it's like, that sounds like something that could just happen with a heroin addict. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, Jesus Christ. There's also another theory of a man, and I honestly didn't really understand this one, so I I barely hardly included it, but there's this man who who is referred to as a pastor, because he's a pastor now, right? But at the time that this all happened, he wasn't. But he supposedly had it out for the boys, specifically Matthias, and it was well known, and it's like well accepted around their community that this guy did it. Like everyone's like, "Oh, he did it," but because he has power, like none of us have ever like, like confronted okay. him about it. Um, and and most of the family members of the five believe that he was behind their disappearances. Uh, but again, it's a lot of speculation, and and, and it's so complicated, and it's just a fucking web that I don't even right. want to explain it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and another thing is, and this is weird. Well, it's not really weird, but this. So there's a theory that this was planned by someone because there was a bunch. There was a string of of crimes against the disabled at the time, specifically mm-hmm. the, the the gateway center where the boys had met. It right. was attacked and threatened consistently. It was burned down once. A Molotov cocktail was thrown into the window at one point. Like all this shit. But also, you have to remember, it is the 70s, and they were a lot less understanding and much more prejudiced 
towards this community than we are now, I would say. So to I'm, me, I don't even see I don't really see it as a conspiracy so much as I see a bunch of redneck stupid hicks being I mean, asshole hicks and like this des- is, yeah, destroying this place and and and, and pure and, speculation, but to me that sounds like they're just yeah, assholes like you said and the yeah. idea of like it's not that they're doing this to people inherently because they have a disability but it's like haha how much fun would it be to throw a molotov cocktail through a window and we can do it at this place because they're not really people in exactly. there you know what i mean right. that kind of right. thought as opposed to like a targeted hate crime as much of a a subconscious hate crime wrapped up in just right. uh, general vandalism right so there are two sightings of matthias that came after the disappearance of of all five and after the bodies were discovered that are kind of interesting so the first came from Kathy Madruga, who after a long shift uh, went to her parents' bar, La Casa Blanca. After using the bathroom in the back, she came back out and noticed a man sitting at the bar staring right at her. This man, she claimed, was Gary Mathias. She ran to the kitchen and told her parents, who told her to call the cops as they went to investigate. When she got off the phone with police and entered the bar area, Mathias was nowhere to be found. And when the other patrons of the bar were asked if they had seen Matthias, none of them said they had. So, was he there? Right. I mean, on one hand, it kind of sounds like no, but also, like, imagining if someone was like, did you see this guy while I was out at the bar with my friends? I'd be like, no, I didn't. Dude, literally, all the time, people at my job will come out, even when I'm not drunk, people will come out and be like, did you just see, like, a, a, a man and, like, a woman come out here? And I'm like... Huh? Maybe. Like, yeah. Oh, I don't. I yeah. don't pay attention to other people. You know what I mean? Right. I'm, yes. Yeah. Um. So, the other one comes from Tammy, who also claimed to have encountered. Again, this is in this story. She was referred to as his sister, but she claims to have encountered her brother while on a shift as a nurse. She went to check in on a patient in room three twenty who had been involved in a car accident and was set to spend some days in the hospital. Her heart stopped as she examined the man. It was her brother, Gary Mathias. The man claimed to be Gary Anderson, 32, but Tammy swore it looked and sounded just like her brother. He claimed to have no knowledge of Gary Mathias and simply said he had been involved in an accident on Arboga Road and was in extreme pain. She left that night, sure that that was her brother in that room. So the next day, she came back only to discover the man at 320 was gone checked out by his quote father unquote i don't know huh it's yeah i mean it's like everything in this case it's just like i there's not enough information and it's also crazy to me because like a lot of these cases over time as you see all these theories develop they eventually start to converge right yes where it's like each pieces of each theory start to fit and become more of a secure narrative. Whereas this, every single theory is completely different from the first, from the next one. You know what I mean? Right. Like the, there's the lady who said she saw him the day after mm-hmm. the people who said they died that night. You know what I, I mean? There's right. so it's just insane. And so, none of them have more credibility than any of the others no, by, from what you can tell. That's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. So this incident is often referred to as the American Dyatlov's Pass, uh, which we will eventually cover. That also one is great, also fucking insane. Uh, that one's a little more uh, oogly doogly spooky, yes. isn't a, a little less like something bad happened here, and it's yeah. it's not. It's, I don't know what, but it's bad. So this has led to the speculation, of course, 
of aliens and Sasquatches being involved, which, hey, I love an involvement of Sasquatch and aliens. But as spooky as these possibilities are, yeah, they don't. There doesn't seem much to back it. It doesn't feel like it no. fits in this case to me. This case is tangible human involvement. If if there I is foul play, I believe the, it's yeah. humans. I don't think the one doesn't feel yeah, supernatural. Sorry. The one thing we know about this is the what, right? Right. Like everything within a reason makes sense. Where the car was found versus where all the bodies were found. Right. How the people were dead, roughly. Right. All of those are connected, right? You can easily follow from point A to point B. The why is what we don't have. Right. Is why did any of this shit even come close to happening? Right. And it's just like we'll never know. And that's frustrating. So and and, and of course, you know, like like we mentioned a little bit, and we can talk about this a little bit here, but like uh some people, there's some people out there, the Madruga family it seems like, especially, that believe Gary is the villain in this story that matthias mm-hmm. is the one who orchestrated this thing not in like the sense that like it was premeditated or it was pre-planned but maybe in his schizophrenic uh fugue state he led them out there maybe he right. found out that they didn't like him as much and that they wanted to cut him loose and he was upset so he led them up into the mountain and mm-hmm. they got lost and he escaped and he made it out, or maybe he perished along the way, or maybe, you know, he forced yeah. them to go out into mountain while he was hallucinating, and they all perished as a result. Yeah. I don't believe that, though. I believe Gary is just as much as a victim as anybody else in this case. Okay. Um, to me, this case is a tragic one because, unfortunately, I believe more could have been done to help these men as they were yeah. missing and to figure out what happened to them after their demise. But unfortunately, like I said earlier, the media and law enforcement sort of wrote them off as simply nothing more than handicapped, simple individuals unable to think for themselves who wandered off into the woods. A depiction that is still repeated today, but it's actually far from reality, as we've already talked through it. And I think had they put those biases aside, they could have saved some of them before they perished. They could have found them a lot sooner. They could have had an explanation to this case. I but think, they just treated it as, oh, a bunch of stupid men got lost. I think Weir could have been saved. Oh, 100%. I think Weir, uh, by far, had the highest likelihood of being able to survive this. If they had, I don't know, I just, it feels wrong to me that these people who are professionally trained to keep, <coughs> excuse me, to be rescue services in these areas were unable to make it to a cabin. And I understand that may be unfair of me, and I don't know the full story of it. But to me, it's like that's like being able to visit those cabins and seeing that should be an integral part of your job. Yes. Right? To try to check and make sure that if someone makes it there, they'll survive. Right. So here's my theory. This is what I've come up with. Um, It's very loosely, it follows very loosely, uh, very closely, sorry, um, the Mm -hmm. official explanation. Yep. Except I incorporate the Bears Market incident. I think they go to this game, right? Mm -hmm. They leave the game, they're having fun, they go to the store, they're goofing around. A group of small-minded fucking hicks or whatever, Mm -hmm. or, or college kids come out, they see them. The attitudes of the time are different. They're horrible. They start poking fun at them. They're making fun mm-hmm. of them for being, you know. And uh, 
a fight ensues. Matthias, because he was kind of hot-headed, we know that he had somewhat violent tendencies in the past. I know that he had gone like two years without an, without a, a, an incident, but he's not around his parents or his family. He's around his friends. He wants to stand up for his friends. Right. Gets into an altercation with these, these, these men. A fight breaks out. The store owner's like, hey, break it up. The boys get back in the car. They drive off. These guys wait for them to leave. They spot them. They go, those are the fucking guys that we got into that fight with. They follow mm-hmm. them. They give chase. Maybe they're in a pickup truck, right? Right. They run them up the mountain. When the, the mm. when the boys get up the mountain, they get stuck in the snowdrift. They try to back out, th- thus right. explaining the wheels spinning. Yeah. Uh, maybe they had the window down because the men had come to talk to them or something, or they were trying to hear for the car. I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. They get out of the car. Two of them die along the way. Uh, because they're cha- they're still scared. Whether these men found them or not, they're scared that these men are coming. They go into right. the woods out of fear. Uh, mm-hmm. They can't double back because they know that that's where they were just chased up the mountain. Right. Uh, that explains why uh, Shuns calls out. They become quiet because they think maybe he's with the guys that just chased them up. Right. right? So I'm right. like I'm or thinking that- I'm thinking the the truck is following them up the road. Right. Yes. They manage to turn somewhere and lose the truck for a second. They get yes. stuck. They're trying to spin out. And they're like, hurry, hurry. Those guys are going to come back and get us. They right. roll the window down. They're hearing for because Shun's called, so they roll the window down right. to hear. Yeah. And they're like, shh, they turn off the lights, mm-hmm. right? They get out, and they're like, those guys are here. So they leave the car. They leave the window down. Right. Hurry. They run into the woods because mm-hmm. they're scared. The right. guys come back in the pickup truck, which accounts for uh, Shun's he, uh, seeing people with flashlights, he calls out yes. for help. They stop. They become quiet because now they're mm-hmm. thinking like, oh, shit, maybe a cop or someone's up here. They turn off their flashlights. Right. They leave. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The boys are already running into the woods. Two of them die along the way from hypothermia. The other three make it to the cabin. They're scared to turn a fire. They're scared to get into rations just out of how mm-hmm. they were raised, uh, out of their, you know. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Weir gets worse and worse. Matthias and Hewitt Say we have to make a break for it. Matthias says, no, you stay here. I'm going to go for help. He leaves first. He takes the blankets. He takes the ra- the, 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 the flashlight. He goes off. Mm-hmm. Hewitt stays with Weir, thinks Weir's passed away, leaves the cabin, is lost, doesn't know which way to go, ends up in the opposite direction as Matthias. Mm-hmm. Weir, pa- Weir passes away. Matthias either, A, makes it off the mountain and just becomes one of the mainly home ma- many homeless people who now exist in, in throughout California, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's unmedicated. He's in a fugue state, whatever. Or he came somewhere in a more dense part of the forest to the elements and his body was never yeah. found. That's what, yeah, to I, me, yeah. kind of makes sense. I think that's the, yeah, I think you're I don't 100% know. correct. I, I mean, the only, my only thought or the possible... O- and I will add, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, that the lady who then says that she sees them, she saw them in in, um, in the truck the next day or whatever on the phone. Mm-hmm. I don't. I know the police it found it credible. Wrong. I don't think she was right because she only right. called after she saw that there was a reward for information. So to me, and I I, I hate this because it kind of is mis- misaligning them, maligning them. Mm-hmm. I think her and the store owner decide, hey, what if we gave some information? Or maybe they got them confused. They thought it was some other boys yeah, and they thought it was them. Maybe it wasn't even We'll get nefarious. some information. We'll, was, yeah, maybe it wasn't yeah. even nefarious. They saw some other guys and thought it was them mm-hmm. and reported that to they the They were police. just trying to be helpful, yeah. Yeah. I think the only my only thought is the store owner said that the store clerk broke up the fight, the supposed right. fight, if that happened. Right. 
why so do you think that it purposely was left out of the original report then or do you yeah. think or so otherwise why part, right? why wasn't that brought up why wasn't at the beginning reported? i don't know and um, it does but it also does add credence to the letter found of the, the thought that maybe uh, matthias died of foul play yes because, I mean, it still doesn't explain the shoes, but my only thought is, if, if I were to make a tweak to your story, and I don't even know if I believe this, it's just a general idea of the truck shows up while they're all there, right? Right. The boys are scared. They roll the window down when the truck pulls up behind them. Uh-huh. They get, they're scared. They, the, there's some sort of actual physical altercation in which Matthias is... like captured is Mm -hmm. caught and is getting beat up maybe loses his shoes and one of the other boys picks it up picks them up and thoughts that it they're helping and matthias's body gets dumped somewhere and actually he was murdered and that's why his body was never found and the rest but also you have to think about the fact that like all the boys experienced um uh getting scavenged by animals and such yeah and so, yeah, if it, that happened to Matthias, I mean, the one skull was 300 feet away from his backbone. So right. One of them was only bones. The, you know. You know. Right. The I, idea that they I, just missed bones is very possible. I, I believe that the, the shoes aspect, I believe he, he left behind his shoes and took weirs because his, <coughs> his feet had become the frostbitten feet and they were swollen. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I also still believe there could have been foul play involved. I think maybe they left it out of the report because, again, the police kind of bungled this whole thing. And there is a lot of right. weird speculation that maybe certain aspects of it were covered up by officers. Gotcha. Here's the thing that also happens in small towns. Officers have family members who get involved, right? Like maybe the right. store clerk knew one of the, the guys who started the fight and didn't want to say anything because they didn't want to get them in trouble. That or maybe be. one of the, the kids who started the fight was related to one. Of, and this is just speculation, obviously, but fuck it, let's do yeah. it. No, I, you know? yeah, I mean, that's what, we have nothing else. Maybe the police learned that later on and then we're like right well we can't add that in because then it's going to be like well you guys didn't do your job correctly and that's why it's kind of been kept secretive and then this memo comes out Mm. where they're like hey now that we're thinking about it we think foul play was involved it's kind of best if we don't tell the matthias family because it's been 40 years of us not saying shit to them and now we're starting to think this you know yeah i'd like to actually say i'd like to give uh, to change that narrative and say it's actually much stupider like, I think you're giving too much credence yes, for a yes, cover-up. I yeah. think the uh, the likelihood of the police finding this and being like, it's fine, they'll show up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was it. They're like, we don't, it's fucking cold, man. I don't no, want to go out I'm... there. They'll show up. It'll be fine. We'll give them, like, in three or four days, this will all be over. They'll all be found, and it'll be fine. Right. And then when that didn't happen, and they started finding bodies, and months go by and everything, they're like, Fuck. Exactly. We need to do an actual investigation of this. We fucked up by just assuming it might turn well, out okay. Well, and then media attention has grown, and now it's all of a sudden right. like they're under scrutiny to get this shit right. done. And so now they're doing an investigation months after it happened, right? right. And after all their actual leads are are gone, right. the idea of an altercation gets floated, the letter gets written, and the reason it's kept secret is because they don't have any actual evidence to back it up. Mm-hmm. It's just a theory that's being floated. Yeah. And it's all just because the original were just like, look, 
people get lost sometimes. Let's give this a few days and, and right. they'll show up. And then when that didn't happen, it was like, shit, we got to go back and mm-hmm. rework this to make sense. Yeah, no, totally, totally, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the Matthias family, on the 30th anniversary of Gary's disappearance, ran an obituary in the Marysville Appeal Democrat on February 24th, 2008. And it reads, Gary Matthias, October 15th, 1952 to February 24th, 1978. Part of us, yet parted from us, managing grief that becomes us. Departed in body, eternal in thought, birthday gifts no longer bought, Gone to heaven far above us, parted from us, forever far from us. Love always. And with that, we've reached the end of this story of the Yuba County Five. Perhaps Gary Mathias succumbed to the elements. Perhaps he was murdered elsewhere. Or perhaps he's still out there. One of the many homeless people in the state of California lost and forgotten. Regardless, hopefully one day we can get the answers to this tragic and strange tale. If not for the satisfaction of curiosity, then at least for the peace of the families. And with that, Mason, let's wrap the show up. Real quick, though, before we do, I do want to say, that thought, though, of just becoming one of the many homeless people out there who just, like, rambles and people, like, think they're just crazy, Mm -hmm. that's a terrifying thought to me. Of, like, you're involved in some sort of predicament, right? That you enter a state of shock or whatever and you end up on the streets and you get exposed to whatever, and then right. you're just being like, no, I'm this person. And people are like, yeah, all right, crazy guy. Well, and, but that's if, I mean, with his schizophrenia going unmedicated, and if uh, for some, in, uh, the instance he gets back into drugs, that, I mean, exactly. he, he right. has, he might, you know, but assuming that's, that's what happens, that's he could even not know. a terrifying thought that yeah. he could be out there right now. Yes. Fucking, you know, maybe yes. a town or two over from his family. Right. And, you know, we'll never know yeah. that that was him. Because yeah. we, unfortunately, in this country, we, our government doesn't give a fuck about Maybe unhoused people. Maybe he's living in a, in a shed in Forbes Town. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows, yeah. really, though? That's right? the thing. Man, there's no real, none of these, again, none of these theories have any more validity than the other ones. I mean, no. we can we can surmise and use educated guesses, but in all honesty, none of them are any, you know, they all have an equal level of validity. Well, with that, Mason, let's wrap the show up. If you like the show, make sure to leave us a five-star review, which you can do in-app on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'd love it if you left us a five-star review like Kimberly M. did, saying, You can tell a lot of time and attention goes into making these episodes. The hosts are very relatable and have great chemistry. The Pumpkin King is my favorite, though. Thanks, Kimberly, for your support. Go on. Uh, You can support the show. Sorry. <laughs> See you, friend. You can support the show by going to patreon.com backslash captain's logcast and donate a dollar. Anything helps keep the lights on. You can also go over to Tee Public and shop our merch, which is currently on sale for the holidays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. click the link in our show notes. Remember, if you donate slash support, it all goes towards improving the show and perhaps allowing us to do this full time. Mason, where can our listeners find you? You can find my art on Instagram at MasonSHR, where you can see all my, my drawings and my, my graphic design stuff, and, and, and it's super fun, and please follow me. I'd, be, I'd made mean, mean a lot to me. Please, Look at my guys. art. Please look at my art. <laughs> 
Well, everyone, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at j.vaya underscore junior and the show on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at Captain's Log Pod. You can also subscribe on YouTube to the show's official YouTube channel, Captain's Log. If you can't get enough of me, you can listen to my other podcast with friend the log, Max Benyon, called Max and Jose Have Something to Say. And right now, I have one video project currently up. You can go watch a scene study I did called Dante's Damnation over on Animal Productions. I'll put the link in the show notes. It fits our vibe. It's, it's, it's about a man waking up to be interviewed by a stranger. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a little four minutes of just a scene study. So go check nice. that out. Uh, make sure to tell your friends and family about the show if you enjoy it. And if you'd like to share your opinion on this case or have some insight to share, please do so by writing in to captainslogcast at gmail.com or feel free to shoot us a DM on all of our social media, any of them. And also, right now would be a great time to give a special shout out to Jose, who just finished his finals for film school. Yeah. Which is very, very exciting. I can't wait to do it again next semester. Yeah, please go and congratulate him. He deserves it. I'm so tired, guys. (laughs) I'm so tired. You can also suggest episode topics guests you'd like to have back etc make sure to subscribe and download on apple Podcasts, spotify and google play and pretty much any other podcast directory thank you to carlos rivera for composing our show's theme with that everybody we have reached the end of our show we'll see you next week for a lost log i've been your captain jose valle jr joined by co-captain mason fighting for the steering wheel schrader You got the seat, I get the steering wheel, and we'll switch in 10 minutes. Ah, and this has been Captain's Log. End of transmission. Pew, boop.